Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This is our Women's World Cup preview podcast with me and SI's Lakin Littman. We'll be publishing podcast episodes after every U.S. game during the tournament. While we've got you, make sure to check out our podcast series, Throwback, on the origin stories of the U.S. Women's National Team and the FIFA Women's World Cup. That's Throwback. You won't regret it. Onward! Okay, let's bring in SI's Lakin Littman, who will be doing this podcast with me during the Women's World Cup. We're going to come out after every U.S. game, but today it's a preview podcast for the Women's World Cup, which starts June 7th, uh, France, South Korea. Uh, First U.S. game is June 11th. And Lakin, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I'm excited. This is going to be fun. I am very excited about this. I met you when you uh, were in 2015 covering the Women's World Cup for USA Today. Yes. Um, And got to know each other a little bit then. I was very excited when you joined Sports Illustrated. I am very excited to talk Women's World Cup with you over the next month. And uh, there's lots to talk about here. I know. I'm really excited. Um, I'm jealous that you're in France. <laughs> but I'm excited to hold things down also here doing the podcast with you. It sounds like I'm going to be doing some SITV stuff also with you um, every week. And um, yeah, I'm excited to get things going on, on Friday. Yeah. Um, by the way, I would recommend to everyone, if you get a chance, read Lakin's story on SI.com about the U.S. women's national team players and how their union is teamed up with the NFL players union, the WNBA players union. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff from it. I thought it was a really cool article. Thank you. Yeah, I had no idea that they were using each other as resources, all these leagues. And I thought it was really cool, you know, talking to Becca Rue and Demory Smith about just their partnerships and relationships and how they just utilize each other all the time for and everything from you know CBAs to um, you know just general ideas like uh, the rookie premiere. Becca was at the rookie premiere. That part did not make it into the story, but she said <laughs> something like that it would be cool to, for the U.S. Women's National Team to do something like that. It is really really cool to see what they've done over the last four years to really try and bet on themselves uh, yeah. as players and. And we're going to start by talking about the U.S. here. Uh, that's where a lot of the interest is in the United States, is in the 2015 World Cup champions. Will they do it again in 2019? And I want to start by asking you, Lakin, first off, let's assume the U.S. wins this World Cup. Tell us how it would happen, in your opinion. Well, they would first have to beat France. We both assume, I think we both projected them the U.S. and France playing each other in the quarterfinal, which would be true. the most unfortunate, I think, thing to have two world powers like that playing that early and then one, uh, you know, going home. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for the U.S. to win, you have to have players like Alex Morgan playing the best that she, you know, she scored, I think, um, a goal every every game in 2018. 
Is that, mm-hmm. I, that I think that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think I think one thing that um, everyone's kind of a little bit uncertain about right now is goalkeeper Alyssa Nayer. Um, this is her first major tournament. She is Hope Solo's um, successor, and you know how 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 does she play? Um, how is she is she going to make mistakes? Is she going to come off her line? Um, and is she going to make some big stops? I remember last. World Cup in the semifinal against Germany, um, you know, Hope Solo played those mind games and she, right. you know, and then <laughs> and Germany completely missed, missed the PK. If Alyssa's in a position like that, what's going to happen? Um, so I think that's going to be something really interesting. Also, you know, the U.S. has been criticized for the lack of depth on its back line. You know, Jill Ellis has to hope that Becky Sauerbrunn and Crystal Ellis don't get uh, crystals, crystals don't go, don't get hurt, um, and if they do, or if they can't, you know, play, if they come out, who who's coming back, who's coming in for them? We saw, um, you know, Abby Dahlkemper and Tierna Davidson. They made a couple of mistakes in some of the tune-up games, but if all these things are working perfectly and seamlessly, um, and the U.S. just dominates like you know we've seen them do so many times in the past, um, I have the U.S. winning their group, beating France in the quarterfinal. Beating England in the semi, which is, you know, they tied um, in the She Believes Cup, um, and then beating Germany in the final and then defending their title. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty crazy situation with the draw with, as you said, if France and the U.S. played their abilities, win their groups, and win their round of 16 games, it would be France-USA in the quarterfinals in Paris. And I think that's a very likely scenario, actually, at this point. I think it's a little unfortunate because I think that would be a great final and it would be a bummer to see one of those teams out at that stage, either the host team or the defending champion. I think whoever wins that game will win the tournament. And um, I, in terms of if we were going to assume the U.S. wins the World Cup, tell us how it would happen, I would think that the attack performs basically as expected or better. Uh, this is the most prolific attack the U.S. women's national team has ever had. They've got a starting front three of Alex Morgan, Tobin Heath, Megan Rapino. that's just so, so dangerous and can hurt you in so many ways. And then they have, they can bring in an entirely new front three in Carly Lloyd, Mal Pugh, and Kristen Press that would start as a front line for just about any team in the world. So I'm not really concerned about the attack I am concerned about the defense in the sense that it hasn't been tested a heck of a lot. Uh, when it was tested, they lost at France and a friendly earlier this year. Um, I think because Jill Ellis has, I think in a good way, changed this team tactically into a team that really is daring in the attack, is a 4-3-3 now. That's not the formation they used in 2015. Or 2015. And the fullbacks really get upfield into the attack and serve crosses. So that leaves the two center backs exposed uh, at times, uh, along with Julie Ertz, the defensive midfielder. And so um, there are teams like France who have a lot of speed who on the counter can, can really hurt the U.S. So um, I think if the U.S. is going to win this World Cup, the, the defense is going to have to perform. And I do think Alyssa Nair would have to come up big at some point in the tournament and she's not the goalkeeper hope solo was but basically nobody is and instead of maybe looking at nair as uh a huge huge worry spot this is also an opportunity for her and if she does perform i think that would be uh a pretty incredible story but it's going to be an x factor we're not going to know much until we actually see her in this tournament now let's assume the u.s does not win this world cup Lakin, tell me how <laughs> it would happen. I think it happens in the quarterfinal, like we were just saying, <laughs> <laughs> against, against, against France. Um, yeah, I mean, which that would be the U.S.'s worst finish of all of all time, which would just be... In a World Cup, yeah. In a World Cup, in a World Cup, yes. Um, I mean, I think, like we said, it could come down to uh, a, mis- a breakdown somewhere in the middle of the field and, and then, the you know, the back line... Um, not stepping up and the lack of depth and you know hurting hurting the U.S. there. I don't know. Um, I think that, um, like you said, that Alyssa Nair is going to have to come up big at some point. Maybe that some point is 
you know, against France, and she and she doesn't. I'm not very good at pronouncing the French players' names. Um, <laughs> Nor am I. <laughs> which I, I'm assuming you might have to do on TV. <laughs> um, but I guess there's they, they France has um, who is it? They you is it Eugenie? Eugenie Le Sommer. Okay, I'll let I'll let you say her name. I mean, she scored. She's one of the the top scorers for their team she scored more than I think it's 70 goals for the national team mm-hmm. um, I mean she gets back behind that back line and gets one on one with Alyssa Nair I mean that's going to be pretty dangerous I would think um, I don't think like you said I think that if, whoever wins the quarterfinal between the U.S. and France is going to win it all so the, if the U.S. loses it's because um, they didn't fix the mistakes that they made in their 3-1 to loss to France earlier this year in the January friendly, and um, you know they they have they make too many mistakes. I will say, by the way, that you and I both have the U.S. winning this tournament. So um, I think both of us over Germany in the final as well, um, and we'll see how that shakes out. Um, you know, I look at if the U.S. were not to win, it might have to do with a situation where the U.S.'s lack of depth in certain areas would be exposed. So for me, that's Julie Ertz. So I don't think it was a coincidence that that friendly loss to France earlier in the year, Julie Ertz wasn't in that game. Mm -hmm. Megan Rapinoe wasn't either, but Ertz wasn't. And I think she's kind of the most indispensable player on the US team. I don't see someone who can do what she does in terms of breaking things up in the midfield, defensively, getting the attack going and transitioning in the other direction and really protecting uh, the the two center backs. And so, you know, it seems like every other game, Julie Ertz is bleeding from her mouth or getting an <laughs> elbow in the face. And, and she's fought through it and stays on the field. But, like, you don't really want to be in a situation where Julie Ertz isn't on the field. And I think that could be an issue. Or there's a lot, not much depth at the fullback positions either. You know, uh, you know behind Crystal Dunn is your... Uh, as your left back and Kelly O'Hara, who's injury prone as your right back. Uh, I thought it was a little worrying to see Tobin Heath being used at left back <laughs> recently. Right. If that's your depth, then I think you have some problems that have not been addressed yet. <laughs> but uh, in any case, moving on here, we've got pre- <laughs> predictions for the golden boot and the golden ball. Golden boot is the top score. Golden ball is the MVP. Who do you see being the top scorer in this tournament? I think both of these awards really are wide open right now. Um, I think, I mean, Alex Morgan has a chance. Sam Kerr from Australia, she has a chance. Um, Vivian Miedema, is that how you say it? Miedema. <laughs> Miedema. That's what I say. Okay. I, just, I have no idea if that's <laughs> She right. definitely has a chance. Um, so, yeah, I think that some any of those players, um, or somebody who I obviously didn't mention, <laughs> could, could possibly uh, win the golden boot. You know the Golden Boot. I am. I usually go with one a player on one of the top teams that I think is going to go deep, and also has a draw in the group stage that is very, let's say, favorable. Mm-hmm. And so I had picked Celia Sausage of Germany four years ago because they had Thailand in their group and and just destroyed them, and uh, Sasha scored a, a boatload of goals. Now the U.S. has drawn the easiest group that it's ever drawn in a World Cup, it's got, as the first two games, Thailand and Chile. And even though Thailand and Chile have actually done better than I expected in recent friendlies against some some pretty good teams, I could still see the U.S. pouring the goals in here because they're going to be incentivized to score as many goals as possible because of goal difference uh, potentially determining, determining who wins the group. Right. So... Uh, if that's the case, I could see Alex Morgan having six goals after two games. I really could. Um, here's also someone in Alex Morgan who, even though she won the World Cup in 2015 with the U.S., only scored one goal. And I think she's someone who's really motivated by putting the ball in the net as much as possible. And I think she probably wouldn't say this publicly, but I think she sees these first two games as an opportunity to send a real message and 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 just simply get a lot of goals. So if I'm going to pick one person, I'm going to pick Alex Morgan uh, for, for Golden Boot. Uh, golden Ball, I think, could be uh, an interesting discussion. If we've got 
the U.S. We both had the U.S. beating Germany in the final. That would suggest Germany has a good tournament. So Jennifer Marjan mm-hmm. uh, could be somebody who would win that award for Germany. Uh, she was terrific in the Olympics in 2016 when they won. Uh, and if you're going to pick a U.S. player, I could see a Megan Rapino, uh, or even if I'm going to be a little bolder, say Rose Lavelle, who I think has an opportunity to to be the number ten for this U.S. team, uh, really pull the strings and against some of these teams, and especially with teams that are trying to park the bus against the U.S., be the weapon that the U.S. has been looking for was looking for in that 2016 game in the Olympics when they were eliminated by by Sweden to really find the space when it's really tight. And Rose Lavelle is is capable of doing that. Uh, I think she could be a breakout star from this tournament. So I also have um, Jennifer Marazin from Germany. Um, but as far as the U.S. players, um, while I think that your your argument for Rose is very interesting, and I think that she could definitely be a breakout player, I have listed, I would say, just Tobin Heath, who I think is always just completely underappreciated despite yeah. her, her incredible skill and being able to do things that really not many, if any, other women's players are able to do. Um, Julie Ertz, as you were talking about a few minutes ago, and just not coming off the field, no matter... Um, how banged up and bruised that she is, what, what part, what body part is bleeding out. <laughs> um, and I think, um, also Megan Rapino. um, yeah. like you said, I think those three U S players, um, have the chance to just, you know, you take one of them off the field and the, and the game is just completely different. I, I like the U S as a team because you can come up with almost half a dozen players who could be sort of the breakout star or be the star for right. this U.S. team, which I think is a good sign for uh, why this U.S. team is, is in a good position to defend its title. Um, next question. Most fun team to watch and why? Um, I'm going with England, and my reasoning is basically because we've heard so much in this lead-up to the World Cup how much more interest and investment and resources and support that they've gotten from, you know, their federation and and their fan base. And, you know, we've heard that, you know, the Guardian, the Telegraph, they're sending, they've bulked up their coverage, they're sending more reporters to the World Cup. And, um, you know, just the players are feeling all of that. And I think that they're empowered by that. And they're just, they're one of the teams that we talk about when we say that there are all these countries who are catching up to the U.S. And, um, you know, if we see... England, first of all, they also have, you know, very exciting attack. Um, but I think that if if we see them play, you know, the U.S. in, um, in the semifinal, I think that they're going to, the U.S. and England t- uh, tied in the She Believes Cup. But I think that this stage is so much bigger and different that I think that, um, you know, it, that England has more of maybe a chip on their shoulder that they're showing other countries that hey look if we can get to this stage and we can have this kind of success you know it increases just the level of interest back home with younger girls who maybe weren't interested in playing soccer and now are and also other countries who maybe are just a little a few steps behind them who you know it proves to them oh well we can get our federations and our fan bases and we can get more you know they they can be interested uh, in us just like it ha- just like England and we we can, you know, and maybe in four years we can be, um, you know, in that in that same spot. So I'm excited to see kind of what they do with that responsibility. It's been interesting here in in Paris because I've been hanging out with uh, my Fox colleague Kelly Smith, the greatest ever England player, and she's been amazed at how much coverage there has been of the England team in England leading up to this tournament. And she was saying that this England team talks publicly about wanting to win this World Cup and that she never did that when she was playing for England. As good as she was, she basically just wanted to get out of the group. And (laughs) they've clearly taken a step upward, though she has concerns about whether the amount of attention has gotten so big that it might have uh, even a potentially negative impact on the England players. once this tournament gets going just because they haven't experienced it before. But otherwise, she's pretty bullish about the team. Um, If I'm going to throw out a team that I think could be really entertaining, 
I would I would throw two. I I would say Australia, which I think is a lot like the U.S. and they have so much firepower. And I think Sam Kirsch is such a fantastic scorer, uh, but they don't defend very well, and hence that's what created a five three game that the U.S. won against Australia. Uh, yeah. in a friendly a couple of months ago where really neither team defended much at all. Um, but it was a fun game. Uh, and another team that I think could be a lot of fun to watch is the Netherlands. And they surprised everyone by winning the European Championship in 2017, which they hosted. And uh, and they really do have uh, an explosive front four. You mentioned Vivian Miedma, uh, but they've also got... Um, Shannon's Van uh, Van Zanten, uh, and then uh, who else have they got? They got Leahy Martin, the 2017 World Player of the Year. They've got uh, the central midfielder uh, Van de Donk. Like, and they destroyed Australia the other day in a friendly in the Netherlands before like 30,000 people. So like, they've got a, a lot of crowd support too here uh, that they built really in the last couple of years by winning that Euro at home. And uh, they also don't defend a ton either, but I, I actually don't mind that. I think it can make for some really entertaining games. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Actually, um, I have Netherlands as my answer for our, the next question. <laughs> which, Ooh, which is, um, oh, is that surprise, po- surprise positive performance by but, a team? And my reasoning is because I would say I had, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my dad who is a big soccer fan he coached me when i was little and i imagine him watching the world cup and being like i didn't know the netherlands was good (laughs) and so it's one of those like casual follower of you know the global game and seeing a team that is really good and has a chance to go deep into the knockout stage and um you know the netherlands as you mentioned has one of the most lethal attacks in the world um and with those players you know, Vivian and Danielle. Um, Vivian is a is a scoring machine, and um, Danielle, you know, she sets up a lot of those a lot of those goals. Um, and then, you know, you had Shanice Van Des, Des Sanden, who um, she was on the I believe on the Lyon team, who won Champions League. Yes. Um, and then Leake Martins uh, was the 2017 World Player of the Year. Anyway, these players have a lot of experience playing together, which right. um, you know. That just means they're going to be really fun to watch. No, I think so. In, t- in terms of surprise positive performance by a team, um, I you know, I don't know if Australia surprises anybody anymore because I think they've certainly given the U.S. a hard time head-to-head over the years. But I don't know if people have thought of Australia in the past as a team that was capable of winning the World Cup. And I think they are capable of winning the World Cup. My only concern is they hired a new coach out of the blue earlier this year, which really seemed to unsettle some things. And we never really did get a full, did get a full explanation of why they fired the previous coach. But uh, when you look at, at how Australia has improved in, in certain parts of the field in recent years, they were always like a, a, a decent team, a hardworking team. But I think that jump in quality that Sam Kerr represents um, of going from sort of like a, a decent team to a you know, World Cup contender, uh, she's kind of the personification of that. Uh, and, and then there's other, they just have good soccer players uh, on this team, you know, and some, uh, I don't know. I, I, I like the way they approach the game. I don't know if they always defend well. I think if, if they have troubles at the World Cup, that might be, their undoing but i i have australia getting uh, to the semifinals and facing germany uh which i think could be a really interesting game um in terms of surprise negative performance by a team what would you say i think i'm going with brazil just because i think a lot of times people assume that because they have marta and because of just the rich tradition in brazil um they're going to make it you know i don't know to the semifinals or finals but you know they've kind of been perpetual underachievers in the world cup and you know they have a veteran team they have marta they have formiga who actually might beat christy rampone's record as the oldest woman's player to play in a world cup she's She's 41 she's 41 um uh, but you know they've i think they're come i believe they're coming off nine straight losses heading into the world cup yeah um and you know you want to believe that a team 
like especially as Marta's on the tail end of her career is going to be better than they have in the past. But I have Brazil um, probably finishing second in their group, but not mm-hmm. going far in the knockout stage. Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of crazy because Marta came out in an interview this week with a Swedish newspaper and said, this is the worst Brazil team I have ever been on. Oh, God. At least she's and, honest. <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost as if she's already sort of putting it out there, like, you know, don't uh, don't get your expectations up here. And it's, it's crazy that the six-time World Player of the Year has never won a major trophy still. And... Uh, yeah, she's got an injury that she's been dealing with, uh, a thigh injury that caused her to miss 11 days of training. She only started back up again this week. She may or may not start against Jamaica in their opener, and I think we'll get a really early measuring stick on what Brazil's got against Jamaica because based on what I've seen from Jamaica, um, Brazil should beat those guys handily, but part of me thinks that might be a closer game than people are anticipating. And if it is, I think that's going to be a real problem for Brazil, but also be very cool for Jamaica, which is kind of everyone's second favorite team in this tournament. Um, So let's look at sort of group by group here. Don't want to spend too much time per group because we've already talked about a fair number of these teams. But let's start with the U.S.'s group, Group F. We already mentioned Thailand and Chile are the first two games. Sweden... (laughs) <laughs> cowards yeah, right. is is the third game and and uh i think that's going to be uh, a situation where both teams are qualified but i still think the u.s is going to want to avenge that loss to sweden in the olympic quarterfinals and feel really motivated in that game um sweden plays the u.s in every world cup it's like five straight now it seems like yeah what's the deal with that <laughs> it's just a weird luck of the draw, I guess. But for those of you who don't remember, Hope Solo called the Swedes cowards after the 2016 loss for the way they played against the U.S. Um, and got a lot more punishment for it than I, I think a, a male athlete would have gotten for uh, saying the same thing. But um, do you see Sweden winning the group or, or even beating the U.S.? I think, like you said, I think the U.S. is going to come out and really trying to avenge that uh, quarterfinal loss from the 2016 Olympics. Um, but, you know, you never really know with Sweden. They're kind of inconsistent. You know, they had disappointing finishes in you know the 2015 World Cup and the 2017 uh, European Championships, but then they go and they win silver in, in the Olympics. So you kind of don't really know what you're going to get, I feel like, um, especially given uh, the history between these two teams. Um, I think Sweden is capable, especially if the U.S., um, you know, maybe overlooks their their opponent or, you know, like we were talking about with the lack of depth in certain spots. Um, I think that the U.S. will come out and score a lot of goals. And I don't think that it'll I think that they'll end up winning the group, um, but I'm not ruling it out either. And I also think it's unfortunate. Remember last last uh, last uh, World Cup? Pia was obviously coaching Sweden, and there was all right. that that pre uh, pre game and uh, was in the I think it was the the press conference leading up to the game, and she was asked about Abby and uh, <laughs> and Hope Solo, and she didn't hold back, and so there won't be as um, as much pre game uh, poking fun of players this time around, but um, I think the game will still be just as good. I'm going to miss Pia. She's not coaching in this tournament, uh, and she always brought some personality, I thought. Um, I think the U.S. is actually going to smack Sweden and enjoy (laughs) doing it. And uh, I see USA first, Sweden second. And then my big question is, if Thailand were to get third ahead of Chile, would Thailand do enough to qualify as a third-place team? Because remember, in this tournament... Uh, four of the six third-place teams will actually qualify for the knockout round. So um, while there are clearly sort of two uh, small teams in this group, that doesn't mean that they're both going to fail to qualify. Um, Let's move on uh, to Group A. Uh, This is the group with the host team. Um, By the way, earlier, I don't think I said uh, besides Brazil – 
uh, my pick for most underperforming, disappointing team in the tournament, and I'm going to say France because I think Brazil is like, I think that's a, a, a pretty good choice, but I think we're going to come out of this continuing to think that France are chokers in big tournaments. And I, I hate to say that because they actually have a lot of talent. They're a lot of fun to watch, but they always seem like a team that performs better in the friendly six months before the World Cup than in the World Cup itself. And I'm also a little bit, I don't totally understand so far. I've been here three or four days in France. There's not a lot of stuff up around the, the city of Paris promoting Women's World Cup yet, which may be because the French Open tennis is still going on or I don't know. There is excitement in the media for France's women's team, but you know, it's another one of those situations, like I was mentioning with Kelly Smith in England, where because France has a history of choking in big tournaments and not dealing with the pressure, that there are some real concerns here that because they're getting so much attention, they might uh, have issues performing. We'll see. That's too bad. Uh, I mean, you want, especially given how well their men's team did last year, you would hope that they would just be all in on the women. Yeah. And, and like I said, there's there's definitely interest in the media. And the opening game is Friday. It's France yeah. against South Korea. If France gets off to a good start in what should be a sold-out uh, Parc de Prince stadium here in Paris, then obviously stuff builds, excitement right. builds. And as long as the host nation is doing well, that's a good thing for the tournament. Um, other teams in this group, Group A, France drew a tough group. Norway, former world champion, South Korea, which got to the knockout rounds four years ago, and Nigeria, which has maybe its most talented team ever. Uh, Oshuala, the Barcelona player, is just a really impressive scorer for them. Um, and so this is going to be a really competitive group. Uh, who I assume you see France getting out of this group. What are the other teams that you see getting out? Well, I first want to say that I think it would have been a much more interesting group had Ada Hegerberg not spurned her spurn Norway and was yes. playing. That can you imagine? That would be a really fun matchup. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I don't know. Like Nigeria has been one of the best front lines, and maybe in the in the whole tournament, but um, they struggled sometimes to keep possession. So we'll see if they can, you know, score enough goals. Um, I think I have to put, um, you know, France winning obviously the group, and then I have Norway coming in second, um, and then uh, Korea, and then Nigeria. Yeah. Same order. I've got. Uh, I've got South Korea qualifying as a third place team. Uh, curious to see how they perform their star Ji So Yoon against the host France in the first game, uh, which should have a really good buzz around it on Friday. Group B has Germany, Spain, China, and South Africa, and I think South Africa here is pretty far and away uh, the bottom team yes. in this group. They've qualified for their first World Cup, have not had good results at all lately. Um, but the other three teams I find pretty fascinating. Obviously, Germany has won this tournament twice. Uh, China has been to the final in 99, but has fallen off a bit. Uh, and Spain is one of those up-and-coming teams that was perfect in European qualifying uh, their youth national teams have been doing really well in recent years, and it seems like one of the world's great soccer countries is now finally starting to put real effort into having a, a good women's team. Yeah, I pretty much feel the same about all those teams. Um, you know, it's exciting for South Africa and for all the teams that are in there making their first World Cup. Um, but, you know, they haven't won a game since November, so it's like you're going to – this Germany-South Africa game, I feel like – we're seeing uh, um, it's going to be like deja vu with Germany playing um, Thailand from 2015. Um, so I don't know, but that which you never want to see that those kinds of results. But um. yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, for me, the most intriguing game might be Germany Spain, just yeah. because I think we'll get a sense of in a big game how much better Spain has really gotten. Um, and uh, I certainly think Spain's in a position there to to surprise some people and, and potentially take down Germany. I've still got Germany winning the group, though, ahead of Spain, and then China getting out of the group as the third-place team. 
Um, group C, Australia, Brazil, Italy, Jamaica. Um, we talked about Brazil earlier. We've talked about Australia. Italy is a team that hasn't made the World Cup for quite a long time. They're back. Uh, but I get the sense that there's there's still a bit of an unknown on the world stage. We just haven't seen them in a major tournament for a while. Yeah, and I'm actually really excited to watch Jamaica. I think, did you say that they're their, uh, the second most fun team? Um, in, I think so. In the I mean, tournament, like, maybe the everyone's second girls. favorite team from the U.S. Yeah. They've got like 13 U.S.-born players. It's their first World Cup, first Caribbean team ever to qualify for the World Cup. Bob Marley's daughter has bankrolled this team for years yeah. when the Jamaican Federation basically tried to give it no money for years. Um, and so to see them in this tournament is really cool. They've got a legit, very good center forward in Bunny Shaw, who went to the University of Tennessee. Um, Just signed a deal with Nike. Yeah, and I'm hearing she's uh, here in France that she's about to sign a pro deal with uh, a French team. That's so great. I, it would be an amazing story if in their first game against Brazil, they gave Brazil a game. And I, and I, I think more than ever over the last couple of days that Jamaica might do that. Yeah. And they're called the reggae girls. I think that that's just like, that's just a fun thing to, you know, get on board with for fans who <laughs> don't know much about them. And, you know, I think that, like you said, if they can, if they can give Brazil a game or beat them, then they are going to be a really fun team to just follow for as long as they, as long as they're in the tournament. Yeah. I, I did my picks about a week ago and I had Australia one, Brazil two, Italy three, Jamaica four. The more I hear about the turmoil that Brazil is in, and it is bad, uh, I'm starting to question if I should have had them second in this group. I'm going to stick with it and, and say they'll get out of the group. But even then, I, I had Brazil losing to Norway in the round of 16. I, I just don't see this as a Brazil team or program that's moving in the right direction. Um, let's move on. Group D. Uh, England, Japan, Scotland, Argentina. What do you see here? This is a tough group. Um, I was reading about just the rivalry between England and Scotland. Now, yeah. I mean, England, of course, I mean, I don't remember what the score was, but they, I mean, they they, they, hand, they handled Scotland in their last match. But I think that just the fact that you put in a rivalry in the group stage, that just changes things, you know? Um, and I think that we talked about England, obviously, with it, they're coming in with a ton of confidence right now. Um, and I think that also Japan, um, they're a different team than they were um, the last lot, four years ago, which, you know, obviously played the U.S. in, in the final. Um, they're a different team. They're a younger team. Um, but, you know, they, they're relying on their captain, Saki Kumagi. Um, she's the one who, you know, scored the, the winning penalty kick um, in the 2011 World Cup, um, you know, I think that they they are a dangerous team, that, and I have England and I think Japan, obviously making it out of here. Um, and yeah, I do yeah, too. I, um, I mean, I look at uh, Argentina. It's another one of those situations where I think Argentina is pretty far and away the outlier team yeah. here. I think they could be on the end of some pretty rough scoring lines. Um, I look at Scotland has a couple of very, very talented players. Kim Little, uh, Aaron Cuthbert is a really talented young player uh, for them. But I, as a, a, a team-wide situation, I, I think there are questions about Scotland. This Japan team is very young. Uh, I don't expect them to get to another World Cup final this time around, but they could be very, very good again. I think in the coming years, I think they're sort of trying to set themselves up for next year's Olympic tournament, which they're hosting in Japan. Um, there's a player that I actually spent some time with uh, named Kumi Yokoyama uh, for Japan for our SITV show, Exploring Planet Football, which comes out this week. And she was a, a really interesting person to talk to about her experience in Japan where she's an extremely talented player, and so many of the Japanese players are, are technically skilled, but they actually don't have a lot of players in Japan in terms of registrations, actual numbers, but the ones who do play uh, are very good. 
and but she was telling me that it was only a couple of years ago that she became like a full professional. So it's still mm. a challenge there at the club level uh, to make a go of it as a women's soccer player. But uh, if you want to see some amazing goals, uh, look up Kumi Yokoyama on on YouTube, and there's she's just awesome. And I and I hope she has a, a good tournament. I still think England's going to win the group. Uh, Japan second, Scotland third, Argentina fourth. Um, we have an Argentine player, Gabby Garton, is our interview later in this podcast, which I, I think you'll find interesting. She can explain uh, the challenges of playing in Argentina. Um, group E uh, is the last group we'll discuss. You've got Canada, Netherlands, New Zealand, and Cameroon. What do you see? Well, I saw that... Christine Sinclair only needs four goals to surpass Abby Wambach's international record. Yes. So I could see her doing that. <laughs> I feel oh, like yeah. when Abby, you know, set that record, it was just like every she was so far and away from from everybody and then it's gonna be gonna be broken this World Cup. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, Canada, um, you know, Christine Sinclair is the, you know, the pulse of this team. She's thirty six years old, fourteen time Canadian player of the year. Um, they would like to send her off, um, you know, into retirement, doing doing better than than they've done in the past. And but at least you know, at least she'll have this this record um, to hold to her name. Um, but I think that you know, I'm most excited to see Canada and the Netherlands play um, against each other. That's what I'm most looking forward to in this group. Yeah, and I think that's a really hard game to call. Yeah, uh, just because Canada at its best and the Netherlands at their best. Um, are teams that can go at least to the semis, maybe even later in the tournament. And uh, if they're firing on all cylinders, I, I think that could be a, a really entertaining game. For New Zealand, I see Tom Sermani being the coach. I see New Zealand basically just wanting to win for the first time in a World Cup to get a game. Uh, and they've had some pretty decent results lately. They beat England uh, just last week. And uh, I always thought Tom Sermani got kind of a raw deal as the U.S. <laughs> women's coach and got forced out. So uh, I, I hope he has some success here. Cameroon has a lot of the same players they had four years ago when they got to the knockout rounds. And so I like this group because there's not one team that is obviously worse than the rest. And so I think every game in this group could be interesting. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. But as I said, I'm very excited about this Canada-Netherlands <laughs> game. It's, it's a circled. <laughs> Here's what I actually have Canada winning the group. Netherlands okay. second, New Zealand third, Cameroon fourth. I have the Netherlands actually going farther in the tournament than Canada, though. Uh, yeah. I've, I've got the Netherlands getting to the quarterfinals. I've got Japan beating Canada in the round of 16. Um, so last question here. Who wins the tournament? I mean, I, I picked the U.S., um, yes. you know, like I think I said earlier um, and you said, too, you know, whoever wins this France U.S. quarterfinal in Paris is winning the whole thing. And um, I picked the U.S. Um, and then I have them beating England in the semi and uh, and Germany in the final. And I think that if that is their their path through the World Cup, it's going to be a very exciting World Cup to watch. And I thought, you know, 2015 was really exciting. You know, they played China in the quarters, that game against Germany um, in the semi was the, the best game of the whole tournament. And then the blowout, of course, in the final, which I don't think if if it's U.S. and the Germany in, in the final, it's not going to be Carly Lloyd scoring a hat trick. <laughs> it's going to be much more hard fought than that. <laughs> I'm struck by how easy the U.S.'s group is this time around, but also how difficult the path in the knockout rounds could be. I mean, even to, if the U.S. were to get Spain in the round of 16, that is not a gimme uh, by any stretch. The U.S. played Spain earlier in the year, beat them one nothing, but it wasn't an easy game. And I look at, at that. I've got the U.S. then getting France in the quarterfinals, England in the semis, Germany in the final. That would be four difficult games in a way that we didn't see the U.S. have in the knockout rounds four years ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, but it's just more, the competitiveness, the competitive factor, I think, is just more exciting than it was last time. So, I, I mean, I, for one, am very excited to see just first how they handle 
we think that at least those the, those first two games are going to be pretty easy to um, against Chile and, and Thailand, and then you know seeing how it, you, your prediction of um, them handling Sweden pretty easily, and then you know just that that France game. I think that that's going to really just indicate how the rest of the tournament goes. Yeah, and we say competition. I think that is the operative word here for this World Cup because you've got so many teams. I think now that actually have a chance to win the tournament more than we've ever seen and uh, can't wait to cover all the storylines over the coming weeks with you at si.com we're going to be doing this me and you lake and Littman, uh after every u.s game so listeners out there we'd love to have you join us thanks for joining me Lakin. yeah thanks i'm very excited to get going once the game starts Big thanks to Lake and Littman. Next up is my interview with Argentina's U.S. born and raised goalkeeper, Gabriela Garton. Our guest today is Gabriela Garton. Gabi is a goalkeeper on the Argentina team that will compete in the Women's World Cup in France. She was born in the U.S., grew up in Sarasota, Florida, and played at Rice University. She has a master's in sociology and is currently a doctoral student and has written several academic papers on the treatment of women's soccer in Argentina. She has a book coming out next month called Guerreras uh, from her thesis. She's also on Twitter at Gabby underscore Garton. Gabby, congratulations on making the World Cup team, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for, for the invitation. Uh, it's always a pleasure to... I think visibility is a really big part of uh, the growth in women's soccer, especially in Argentina, so it's always a pleasure. So just to start, I'd be curious to know, what's your story on how you got into soccer in the first place and your path in the sport and how you got connected to the Argentine national team? Yeah, my background's quite different from most of my teammates. Uh, I do have one more teammate who was born in the U.S. to Argentine parents. But uh, I started playing soccer when I was eight um, at my local rec club uh, in Sarasota. And I also played uh, baseball, uh, played basketball, tennis, and ended up sticking with soccer. I don't know if it was had to do with my, my mom's background as an Argentinian or if, uh, I don't know. I think I just really loved my place in goal and, and the fact that it was kind of like an individual. It's kind of an individual position, but yet you're still a part of the team and I think that's what I enjoyed most about it and um, how I ended up in Argentina was uh, while I was at Rice uh, my, between my junior and senior year uh, one of my teammates uh, had she's also from the US uh, her dad is from Argentina and she was part of the youth national team uh, from Argentina and so she put me in contact with the Argentine national coach and that was in 2011 and I came for uh, two trials with the national team that year. I didn't have my my paperwork done yet, so I wasn't able to compete with the team in the Pan American Games that year. But um, kind of after that experience, I was highly intrigued as uh, to like what, like why in Argentina, a country that's such a huge footballing nation, why why was women's soccer so left behind? Mm-hmm. It was completely different to what I'd seen in in the university playing in in college and in the U.S., like always never having to worry about having decent cleats, having a field to use, uh, having clothes that um, were adequate to what we needed. Um, and and that was, those were all things that were considered almost luxuries when I, when I first had my first experience with the national team in 2011. So when I graduated from Rice, I wanted to continue playing and also kind of wanted to experience something different, uh, be closer to my grandparents and family members that were still here in Argentina. And so I came I moved to Argentina in February of 2013. Okay. And I mean, you've written extensively about the treatment of women's soccer in Argentina. And you mentioned a little bit about why it's been sort of left behind. But, like, what what was the situation in the last couple of years? I know there was a national team work stoppage in 2017. Uh, obviously, there's the club situation. Um, and I'd be curious to know how that compares to what we're seeing now with what your team's experiencing on the verge of going to a World Cup. Well, after the Pan American Games in 2015, um, which I, I traveled to with the team, um, 
Well, there, 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 was a, there were a whole lot of problems, basically, with the with AFA, the Argentine Football Association in general. Um, there was, well, the ex-president, Grondona, had passed away, and there were some, like, issues in the interim trying to figure out who was going to take his place. Mm. And pretty much in that time period, our, like, women's soccer got completely left out of the picture. And we were, that national team didn't train between July of 2015 until, like, August or September of 2017. We didn't even have a coach. And um, in 2017, when practices resumed, uh, we had a coach who had also already been with the national team in on a prior uh, stint. Um, they were they were pretty much uh, the conditions were pretty terrible. Uh, they were sending us to train at the on the only uh, turf field in the complex. Well, there's like I think there were about 10, 10 impeccable grass fields in the complex, but they didn't want us um, to mess them up for the men's team. Mm. Um, they would send us to a locker room that was really only for um, indoor soccer, so a team of about 12 people. They had 26 girls tra- changing and showering in there. Wow. Um, we weren't getting paid the stipend that we had historically been paid, which isn't much. It was about between 5 and $10 a day a week. Oh, God. Uh, no, wait, five, no, five to $10 a day, sorry. Uh, it was about 150 to 200 pistols at that time. Wow. And now it's about 300, so it's around $8 a day. Wow. Um, so they weren't even paying that. And, and then there was also a trip to, to Uruguay where the team traveled in the early morning, about 3 a.m., uh, by boat. And then had to stay and rest on a bus all day to play in the evening, that same evening that they arrived, and then travel back overnight. Hmm. And not even, they didn't even get to stay in the hotel the day before the game. So it was kind of like a, a series of things that led to, to that strike in September of 2017. And that was actually the first time that a women's team uh, decided to, to take action like that. Um, in the past, it's kind of just like, well, that's the way it is, and so we have to put up with it and just do the best of what we can. And uh, I think in... In 2017, that, that attitude, that mentality kind of started to change, especially I think it had to do with a combination of things, like the women's movement here in Argentina was, was taking taking force. Um, also, at that time, we started to have a lot of players playing abroad, and so they were starting to see that what we were used to or what they were used to in Argentina was not, um, was not okay. <laughs> That's not what everyone else is experiencing in the world, mm-hmm. and that... Um, we at least would need basic conditions in order to start competing at an international level. Um, we needed some basic conditions to be set. And so in, when we got to the Copa America, which is a South American qualifier uh, for the World Cup, uh, there we had another protest, which is in a, a picture uh, we took right before the game against Colombia and after the group stage, uh, where we all held one hand behind our ear. Uh, which is like a reference to uh, Riquelme's protest and against Boca Juniors mm-hmm. uh, quite a while mm-hmm. before when he was asking for um, he was in a contract struggle. But ours was was more of an issue like that we wanted to be heard by the association because we were still fighting for better things. Like we they had sent us with with uh, with clothes that were from like ten years that were about ten years old. Wow. Like, we were using um, I don't know how to explain, but the our the shield you know of the of the federation was completely different from the one that the men were using at the same time hmm. um the sizes were all wrong and we're they're trying to compete to enter into the world cup and so like these things kind of led to that and then um at that point we started to have a lot more support from the media as well okay so that photo ended up um really all over the place and um a lot of media outlets that previously hadn't paid attention. Like there were a lot of people that we didn't even know that we were playing the the Copa America at that time. Okay. Um, there was not very much visibility at all. And so following that, uh, the association started to actually, I don't know, we started to feel that the association was, was listening more. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't, like before the Copa America, we didn't have any really any, any international competition. Uh, the team trained together for about a week before that. And so one of the things they wanted to change is to start putting um, the possibility to play international matches friendlies um, in preparation for a competition. So that's something that has started to, that has started to happen. Um, they've built us our own 
locker room at the the association's complex in Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. Um, in these last few weeks that we've been training, the the president of AFA, um, they call him Chiqui Tapia, mm-hmm. has been with us almost every single day, uh, pretty much very attentive to things that we need. Um, like, I, like I was telling you before we started the interview, um, every day, I think at least we're doing at least uh, one interview per day with a different kind of a different media. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we have friendlies at the at the complex, <laughs> yesterday there must have been about 20 cameras on the sideline, which is something that we've never seen. So it's kind of, um, I think, beyond what our performance is going to be at the World Cup, because realistically we're in a very difficult group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, you know, we play against we open against Japan, then play against England, and then against Scotland, which are countries that have, well, mainly. Japan and England are going to be, um, I think, vying for for the World Cup as uh, contenders. Yeah. And then Scotland, it's their, even though it's their first World Cup, I mean, coming out of Europe is always difficult. So we um, you know we have a difficult group, but I think beyond that, what we're seeing is that this is like the start to to a big change in, in women's soccer in Argentina in general. I saw that recently there was finally some sort of commitment from the club side in Argentina to begin having professional players, the professionalization to some extent was finally going to start. Is that accurate? Yes. Uh, I think it was announced in March that for the next season, which will start in, in August, uh, the teams in the first division will have to have at least eight professional contracts on their team. It's a pretty minimal salary. Uh, the base salary that they're going to get, be sending money from the association to cover those costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be about 15,000 pesos a month, which would be the equivalent of about 300 US dollars, um, which is difficult to live off of, but you can make it work, especially if the club also, you know, puts up something for housing or, or something like that. But, um, but yeah, it's a big, it's a big first step, mainly because it's going to, it's going to have a players are going to have to sign contracts, which is also going to, kind of stipulate the the expectations both from the player side and the club side as well as giving the players uh, medical coverage and even the players who won't be on won't be on contract mm-hmm. they'll also be protected by the um, the players association that um, also protects the the players on the men's side okay got it um, and are you optimistic that some of these changes that we're seeing here are going to continue and, and be real and long lasting? Or is there a concern, especially from the national team perspective, that this is sort of a, a short-term situation just because you guys qualify for the World Cup? Um, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I, I think we all want to be optimistic, uh, but it's hard to forget, you know, a past that's been a reality for, for most of these players their whole lives. But, um, I think like the fact that a lot of also a lot of brands are starting to get involved, um, and I think one of the main barriers or limitations to women's soccer, the growth of women's soccer here, is the lack of um, I don't know a club's perspective from a club perspective and the association's perspective. They were seeing women's soccer as just a waste of money, pretty much. That uh, you know, just throwing money to to the wind and that they were never going to see any kind of um, profit off of that. And now um, there are a lot of brands that are getting involved, starting to sponsor players. Um, recently, prior to the World Cup, there's quite a few uh, advertisements that have been put on TV, including uh, players on the national team. And that's something that was never seen in the past. So I think that the, the possibility for profit is something that might um, serve as an incentive for clubs to start investing more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a rough road and a long road because in Argentina, they don't have youth divisions for women yet. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's something that definitely needs to be, to be put in place or at least opening up maybe the, the youth boys divisions to allow girls to play as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's difficult because I mean, a lot of clubs see it as by taking away a spot for a young boy, you're taking away the possibility to, to get a Messi out of your club and, you know, make millions. Even though it might be more of a myth than a reality, it's the way that uh, things are seen here. Is it your sense that FIFA could be doing more to 
either incentivize or force national federations to do more for women's soccer? I think that FIFA could definitely do more, mainly in, in terms of the management of the resources that they send. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in prior, I think that FIFA has been sending money to AFA for years, for decades pretty much, uh, since the first Women's World Cup, and to, to support women's soccer. But those funds, it's hard to, to say that those funds have actually reached the places that they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. And there's very little um, kind of like enforcement or a regulation by FIFA in that, in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the funds that are going towards the, the professionalization of women's soccer here actually come directly from FIFA as well. Okay. So it's like the first time that we're actually seeing those funds being used for what they were intended for. Okay. And tell me a little bit about your book and, and what is in it. Yeah, so it's uh, my master's thesis was actually an ethnography uh, based on my my experience with my club team here in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started off at River Plate, but then I ended up transferring to a club called Guayurquiza, which is not known at all internationally. Uh, but here they've won the last, of the last five uh, tournaments, they've won four in the first division for women. Hmm. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting club because in what is the like amateur panorama that, that was women's soccer before this process of um, making it professional, um, it was one of the clubs that invested the most in women's soccer. Um, their players had higher stipends than in other clubs. Um, they could work within the institution because it's a uh, it's actually a university that ended up fusing with the club that was associated with uh, with AFA that was on the on the the verge of um, going under pretty much. Hmm. And so when the university kind of took over uh, Urquiza, they started putting a lot more uh, money into both men's and women's soccer in reality. And as a result, uh, they've seen a lot of a lot of growth on the women's side mainly. And I think they've also seen it as a way to make it onto the national stage because their women's team has to play against teams like Boca Arriba, San Lorenzo, and it kind of opens up a lot of visibility for their club. But uh, also kind of trying to see like what the, basically what the daily life of a, a women's soccer player in Argentina is, like what they have to go through to, to play, why they play, um, kind of the, the unequal relationship that also develops between the institutions and the players. Uh, there's kind of a, an unfair dependence that arises between, like, when you're not on contract, the club can let you go whenever they want, and at the same time, you can't leave unless the club gives you permission. Mm. So there, I mean, it's extremely common, or at least it was. Um, I don't know how it's going to be right now after August when things start to change, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um, but... It happened to quite a few of my teammates who were living in the apartments given provided by the club, uh, studying at the university, and even working in the institution. And when the head coach decided that he no longer wanted them on the team, they were left without all of that and having to find a way to, to survive without it. So um, it's an interesting... Yeah, women's soccer here is an interesting panorama, and there's still a lot of things to look at because uh, my thesis is one of the first done on women's soccer here in Argentina and now I have a couple colleagues who are working on, on similar topics um, seeing different analyzing different aspects of women's soccer here but uh, there's a lot to a lot to study yeah no definitely um, in terms of your future after this World Cup are you hoping to continue playing as well as uh, being uh, an academic yeah, I hope to do so as long as possible. Obviously, then uh, I'm 29, so the the idea of of starting a family also starts coming into my head, uh, into my husband's head as well. So uh, that's always a an issue. But well, for like the the near future, at least, uh, I'd like to continue playing. Maybe even try playing in another country. See how how that goes. Have another source for for to compare as well to to my experience here and um, complete my my doctorate and then go from there. But I'd love to, to eventually work at a university and, and maybe give a, give courses on on the social study of sport as well. Nice. Um, you mentioned you're in a very difficult group. Uh, England is a contender to win. Japan also is. They won the tournament in 2011. Scotland, uh, maybe not yeah. at that level, but still has some good players. Um, what would be What would be success for you guys in this tournament? 
I think our first goal is to win a match because Argentina Argentina has never won a match in in the previous World Cups that it played. That we played in I think it was 2003 and 2007, um, and plus with a pretty terrible uh, goals against difference. But um, yeah, I think our first goal would be to win a match and and hopefully move on to the group stage. Even though it could be difficult, we could maybe steal a point from from Japan or England with a with a draw or even a, a win, and then uh, maybe aim against aim for Scotland. Like you said, that's uh, their first time in the World Cup, but we do recognize that they have some top level players. I know they have a couple of Arsenal girls in their squad and some other um, Premier League players. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough group, but I think it's gonna be a really good experience for all of us. I guess just to wrap up here, I'd be curious to know, in your opinion, what still needs to happen with women's soccer in Argentina? Well, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I think the biggest thing is starting to open up youth divisions for women's players. Mm-hmm. Um, the access is very difficult for for a young girl who wants to play soccer. It's very difficult to find a team. Um, usually they have to play uh, with boys if the club lets them. And so opening up youth and um, formative divisions is really important. And then as well, also having from the association directly, like making sure that the clubs who are now going to have professional players can provide the conditions necessary for a professional league, which would be at least um, a field that the team can train on, um, decent clothes, um, making sure that, that the players have the materials that they need, having a coaching staff that's actually interested in the growth of women's soccer, I think that's key. Mm-hmm. And also starting to open up the stadium so that teams can play matches um, before crowds, which is important. Mainly mm-hmm. because uh, they need more... <laughs> the visibility is a huge issue here, and that... Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, an issue is that a lot of clubs argue that there's not enough interest in women's soccer, but sometimes they'll put a Super Clásico River Boca at 9 o'clock in the morning at the complex, which is about an hour outside of Buenos Aires, mm-hmm. that you can only get to by car, and it kind of limits big time the amount of people who can go watch the match. Mm-hmm. But uh, starting to open up the stadiums for big matches, I think, is going to be a, is going to be key as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Gabby Garthon for for speaking to me and congratulations on your book congratulations on going to the World Cup and uh, really appreciate the discussion no thank you so much Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, well hopefully looking forward to reading your stuff on the Women's World Cup awesome Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Lakin Littman and Gabby Garthon, as well as producer Brandon Nix and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you get a chance, check out Throwback, my podcast series on the origins of the U.S. Women's National Team and the FIFA Women's World Cup. See you next time.